Sup, you beautiful bastards. Hope you have a fantastic Tuesday. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show, and let's just jump into it. And the first thing we're gonna talk about today is, oddly enough, there were two national news stories today about bedbugs. The first that we're not gonna really dive too deep into involved the president. Over the past day, President Trump has suggested that his Florida resort be the next location for the next G7 summit, which, one, resulted in some conservatives like Rick Santorum saying things like this. The fact is that the president should not be doing this. He shouldn't, it, it would be a violation of the law as far as, as far as I understand it. Uh, I, I hope that this is the last time he mentions it. But it also led to reports that that resort actually had a bed bug problem, with some specifically pointing to a 2017 settlement where reportedly Eric Linder, an insurance executive, charged he was bitten repeatedly by bed bugs while staying in the resort's posh Jack Nicholas Villa in 2016. And while reportedly the Trump organization denied Linder's claim that his room had a severe bed bug infestation, there were allegations made and then a settlement that followed, so you had people assuming that it must have been real. And that's also why this morning we saw President Trump tweet, no bed bugs adorable. The Radical left Democrats upon hearing that the perfectly located for the next G7 Doral National Miami was under consideration for the next G7 spread that false and nasty rumor, not nice. So there was that. But the other bit, uh, I personally found more amusing. So if you didn't see it, news broke on Monday that there was a bed bug infestation at the New York Times newsroom. And following that, David Karp, who's an associate professor of media and public affairs at George Washington University, posted a tweet saying, the bed bugs are a metaphor. The bed bugs are Brett Stevens. Right, so making a joke about one of the paper's columnists. And Stevens, a Times conservative writer who was not tagged directly in this tweet, which initially only picked up nine likes and no retweets, he took notice. And a few hours after posting the tweet on Monday, Carp was surprised when he received an email from Stevens. An email that notably was also sent to Carp's provost at the university, who's kind of a, a senior administration official. And in this email, Stevens wrote, I'm often amazed about the things supposedly decent people are prepared to say about other people, people they've never met on Twitter. I think you've set a new standard. I would welcome the opportunity for you to come to my home, meet my wife and kids, talk to us for a few minutes, and then call me a bed bug to my face. That would take some genuine courage and intellectual integrity on your part. I promise to be courteous no matter what you have to say. Maybe it will make you feel better about yourself. And that eventually led to Carp tweeting out that email, which of course also led to waves of backlash against Stevens and of course more attention to the initial bed bug tweet. And after reading the email, you had a lot of people that were angry at Stevens for CCing Carp's superior, saying that he was likely hoping to get the professor fired. You also had others who were criticizing him for reacting so poorly to the comments since he's someone who's been so vocal about protecting free speech. And of course, because the internet is the internet, it led to more jokes and more memes. You know, because when you let the internet know you're sensitive to something, they're like, yes, you will have a second helping, sir. And this was so big that not only was Brett Stevens' name trending, but also hashtag Brettbug was a trending topic on Twitter. And ultimately, in this situation, we saw Stevens deactivate his entire Twitter account. But before doing so, tweeting, Twitter is a sewer, it brings out the worst in humanity. I sincerely apologize for any part I've played in making it worse and to anyone I've ever hurt. And as far as reactions of the two men in this situation, in an interview with the Washington Post, Carp complained about Stevens' decision to email his superior, saying he not only thinks I should be ashamed of what I wrote, he thinks I should also get in trouble for it. That's an abuse of his power. And also telling the Post that he would have been willing to take Stevens up on his offer to chat in person had he not included his boss on the email. And also adding, you need to work very hard to find a tweet that obscure and then work harder to find the writer's email and their provost's email to CC them too. And as far as why he is not a fan of Stevens' work, he said, Steven tends to write pretty lightweight, poorly researched columns about things I know something about. So I've always seen him as this person that everyone complains about, but we just can't get rid of. He's a bed bug. Meanwhile, you had Stevens telling the Post that his email, quote, speaks for itself, but then he also later went on to speak for himself on MSNBC, saying that he had no intention to get the professor in professional trouble, but he said that institutions should be aware of how their staff members interact with the rest of the world. And he also had this to say about the bed bug insult. Analogizing people to insects is, is always wrong. We can do better. We should be the people on social media 
that we are in real life. And something that also followed his appearance on MSNBC where people kind of splicing those clips up with him speaking out against safe spaces back in 2017. And as far as my reaction to this story, I'm not gonna be out here calling Brett Stevens a bed bug, although he does appear to be a small-minded, thin-skinned individual. Instead, what I would say and focus on is look at this situation as the wrong way to handle a situation. If someone says what you take to be mean stuff about you, just mute them and go about your day. Are you trying to get someone in trouble for saying something you did not like that was seen by almost nobody? You made sure that everybody would see it. It's just another version of the Streisand effect. But hey, with all that said, of course, with this story, I pass the question off to you. What are your thoughts on this? Then, as you may or may not have known, MTV's Video Music Awards happened last night. And while you've likely seen headlines around stories like certain red carpet arrivals, including YouTube's own Tana Mojo showing up with a snake, can you believe? And or Nikita Dragon showing up with collared and leashed men. With some loving it and others saying that it's tacky, tasteless, and offensive. Personally, I'm just happy that we get to use these ladies for a thumbnail so we can get to the really important issues. As well as other headlines about winners and performances around Lil Nas X, Missy Elliott, Taylor Swift, who actually in her acceptance speech called out the White House regarding the Equality Act. But the headline that I want to talk to you about today actually involves the place that the VMAs took place, which, if you didn't know, is in Newark, New Jersey, and it's actually in the midst of a water crisis. And for some background, starting around three years ago, tests showed that the water in Newark schools contained high levels of lead. And then later, homes and residences throughout the city also tested positive for lead, which prompted the city to distribute filters to around 38,000 at-risk homes a little under a year ago. But then a report from earlier this month showed that those filters may not have been properly working. And so we saw the EPA write a letter to Newark's mayor advising him to make sure that bottled water was handed out to the affected communities. And now, after all of this time, in the past couple of days, strides have been made to further fix the problem. Just yesterday, a plan to replace contaminated pipes was announced. That plan allowing the city to receive a $120 million loan from the Essex County Improvement Authority to replace and repair 18,000 lead service lines causing the problem. And with this loan, it's believed that that work should take just between two to three years. And while two to three years to fix a water problem, which people use every day, may sound like a long time, there had been a previous plan that would have cost the city $75 million and taken close to a decade. But the big thing to note here is that while the plan has been announced, several votes still need to happen for it to be approved. And so in the meantime, I believe understandably, Newark residents have been frustrated both by the water crisis as well as the way officials have handled it. Which, it wraps all around, is why they staged a protest just across the street from the Prudential Center where the VMAs were being held. The protest was organized by the Newark Water Coalition who tweeted during the event, water is a human right, we need clean water, our children need clean water now. And while reports on the numbers vary, somewhere between 100 to 200 people turned out. Also, according to the Newark Department of Public Safety, five arrests were made because people tried to cross over police barricades. But other than that, the protests were peaceful and without incident. And reportedly, the crowd chanted things like, we don't want no MTV, we want our water clean. And during the process, it appeared that some of the protesters were angry that this event was being held while there was also this crisis. People are dying out here! And you got the nerve! You got the nerve to have the VMA in North! You got the nerve! You got the nerve to have these celebrities come here and not give a damn about the citizens of North! Also on the note of celebrities, the Newark Water Coalition did try to get celebrities involved, tweeting the likes of Cardi B, Lil Nas X, Taylor Swift, and Lizzo to use their voices. But we really didn't see this story get that attention, which I found, one, to be disappointing, but also, two, is part of the reason why I'm using the odd spectacle that is the VMAs in 2019 as a way to shine a light on the very real, long-standing problem this area has faced. And Newark residents have gotten to a point where they're having a harder time trusting city officials, especially when it comes to this crisis, because they've been promised fixes in the past and they've been let down. But hopefully today's votes will actually kickstart a real solution. And also as a showcasing that in future situations, if people are vocal enough, they, they show up, they speak out, that it is not guaranteed to fall on deaf ears and that the word 
can get out for change. But for now, we're gonna have to wait to see. And then let's talk about the huge news of Johnson & Johnson losing a massive legal battle over the opioid crisis. This is part of a lawsuit in Oklahoma that began back in May. It was actually filed against Johnson & Johnson and two others by the state. But we're focusing on Johnson & Johnson today because those other two reached settlement agreements before the trial began. And as far as with this trial, you had the state's attorney general, Mike Hunter, claiming that Johnson & Johnson fueled the opioid crisis. With the state saying more than 6,000 people in Oklahoma have died since 2000 because of opioid-related illnesses. The state also claiming that by 2017, pharmacies were filling an average of 479 opioid prescriptions an hour. What was really interesting here is that the trial was actually argued on the basis of public nuisance laws, which is something that's never been done against a pharmaceutical company. Right, to give a sense of how odd this is, public nuisance laws are usually over property disputes, but it is a broad law and can be applied to health issues, with the argument essentially being that Johnson & Johnson created a public nuisance by spreading false information to everyone from the public to doctors prescribing medicine. Part of that misinformation included deceptive advertising and downplaying the addictive qualities of opioids. The state also pointing out that Johnson & Johnson refined a highly addictive opioid poppy and then sold the raw products to other opioid manufacturers. And actually because of that, the state said that Johnson & Johnson actually ended up supplying most of the country's opioid ingredients. But on the other side, you also had the lawyers for Johnson & Johnson denying any misleading advertising, also testifying that the company shouldn't be held liable, arguing that the opioids were supplied legally and were tightly regulated by the FDA. Those lawyers also argued that the company only directly sold a relatively small amount of opioids, saying that it amounted to about 1% of all opioids sold in the country. However, the judge here ultimately ended up siding with the state, saying that the company engaged in deceptive marketing and promotion of opioids, and also saying that those practices lead to higher rates of addiction and overdoses. Those actions compromise the health and safety of thousands of Oklahomans. Specifically, defendants caused an opioid crisis that is evidenced by increased rates of addiction, overdose deaths, and neonatal abstinence syndrome in Oklahoma. And then ordering Johnson & Johnson to pay $572 million, which yes, is a lot of money, but also the state had been asking for $17.5 billion, with the state saying that they plan to use that money to cover a wide range of services over the next 30 years. This including treatment for victims, emergency care, law enforcement, social services, and other addiction-related needs. But regarding that much larger figure, the judge said that the state hadn't provided sufficient evidence of costs past the first year. And immediately after the decision, you had lawyers from both sides talking at a press conference, with A.G. Hunter calling the decision a great triumph for the state and then adding what we showed during our seven-week trial and what judge bachman confirmed today is what we know now for certain johnson and johnson was the kingpin behind the nation's ongoing opioid crisis. And as far as Johnson & Johnson goes, this will not surprise you. It is already being reported that they are going to appeal this decision. After Hunter spoke, you had the company's lawyer, Sabrina Strong, blasting the ruling. No Oklahoma court has ever done what this court has done today in applying public nuisance law to any commercial activity, let alone the highly regulated area of prescription medicines. The decision violates well-established constitutional principles including due process of law. One of the things to note here is if this case is appealed, which likely it will, it will end up at the doors of the Oklahoma Supreme Court. But of course, that escalation is usually part of the plan. And one of the reasons this was and continues to be so incredibly important is because this is the first major legal loss by a pharmaceutical company where a judge has held them accountable for contributing to the opioid crisis. Right, and so that is why this case is being hailed as a landmark decision. And as mentioned before, part of that is because they successfully argued this under public nuisance laws. Additionally, this could prove to set a precedent in the coming months. For example, in October, 
Montgomery of a federal judge in Ohio set to oversee another major lawsuit which involves nearly 2,000 individual cases rolled into one. And so we might see this change a lot. And as far as my personal reaction to this, I am happy about the decision in general. But I also believe when you're talking about Johnson & Johnson, when you're talking about the opioid crisis, $572 million, it, it, it should be much higher. Right? And I'm not gonna go full bleeding hard on you. I'm not gonna talk about like, what is the true value of a life? Right? And if we just talk about actual dollars, I mean, we, we could look really quick to 2015, where reportedly the White House Council of Economic Advisors published a report in 2017, pegging the cost of the crisis at just over $500 billion in 2015. That report adding that it includes lost productivity as well as cost borne by taxpayers, such as ambulance runs, jail treatment costs, and the cost of caring for children whose parents have died from opioid overdoses. And if it's been established that this company is liable because they misled, they lied. And you have to take into account the true cost of their actions and hopefully fund the things meant to thwart the situation that they helped create. Otherwise, $572 million, which yes, is a large number, can just be the cost of doing business for a massive, massive company like Johnson & Johnson. I mean, their annual revenue last year was reportedly 81 plus billion dollars. But hey, that's where this story ends today. It obviously continues and we're gonna keep our eyes on it. And that's where we're going to end today's show. And hey, if you like this video, be sure to hit us with a like. Also, if you're new here, definitely hit that subscribe button, click that bell to turn on notifications. That way you don't miss these shows, which actually, if you're not 100% filled in, you want more viewing. If you want to also watch today's brand new deep dive and or maybe you missed yesterday's Philip DeFranco show, you can click or tap right there to watch those right now. But with that said, of course, as always, my name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love yo faces and I'll see you tomorrow.